everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh, and I'm joined here in the studio by Joel, my producer and brother. And today, guys, we have an extremely interesting and spooky episode for you about the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is supposed to be one of the most haunted prisons on the planet. Now, this thing has a ton of dark history to it. There's a lot of really terrible shit that's gone down in this prison. I mean, what prison doesn't have terrible shit going down in it? But this, the history behind this prison is especially interesting. And I think it makes a lot of sense that this prison is in fact haunted. And there's been tons and tons of phenomena that's been recorded there by a multitude of different people, both paranormal investigators to just your average person. So that is what we're going to be diving into. I thought, hey, you know, we haven't really focused on an actual place, like a physical building yet. And I think sometimes that gets overlooked that potentially a building could be, you know, inhabited or in some cases possessed by evil spirits or just a sort of a eternal resting place for spirits that may or may not have crossed over to the other side yet or for some reason still attached to this place that they have so much history with. So we're going to be talking about that today. And I also wanted to say we have a couple sponsors today, which is awesome because that helps us produce this show. I mean, Joel doesn't work for free, so we got to pay him some way. And today we were lucky to have sponsors with Care Of, Raycon, Thrive Market, and Purple today. So it'd be really cool if any of the sponsors, you know, pique your interest that you check them out because yeah, it helps support the show. It's just another way that you can help support our growth and yeah, just the show in general. So again, thank you to our sponsors. Now, before we get into the Eastern State Penitentiary, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what does it mean for a place to be haunted and sort of, you know, what does that actually entail? How does a place, you know, a physical structure actually become haunted in the first place? Now, this is a really, you know, depending on who you ask, this question is going to be answered a lot of different ways, right? I mean, if you're religious and, you know, for Joel and I, I mean, we grew up in a very religious home and we were always taught from a very young age that when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Never did we have a lesson about, you know, ghosts or spirits or anything like that. I mean, we never even really talked to our parents about that. We never really even knew about that for many years, right? Right. I feel like you and I didn't really get into the paranormal world until we started watching that show, A Haunting, on the Discovery Channel at the time. And yeah. you and I were, yeah, just so into it. Yeah. And it was totally new to us because we, we had no idea that ghosts were actually like a real thing. Right. I mean, we all saw like, you know, those kids movies, Casper, the friendly, you know, the ghosts or whatever. I mean, we we knew of ghosts, but we never really thought that there could be any truth behind, you know, a spirit actually being able to still in some way, shape or form inhabit the earth uh, in a ghostly form. So this was all completely new to us. And, you know, over the past couple of years, really diving into this, it really, you know, the more you look into the spiritual world and sort of this alternate plane that seems to exist where spirits actually you know dwell and and it's kind of in between this reality and whatever's on the other side and mediums and all of that like i didn't even know about mediums till like a couple of years ago well uh, more than that now but you know like actually hearing about somebody that has psychic abilities and abilities to communicate to with spirits and to the other side that was all completely new to us so depending on who you ask, if you're religious or not, you're going to have a different opinion on it. I mean, some people don't believe in ghosts at all. They think it's all 
just ordinary phenomena that's happening that people are, you know, taking as, you know, something paranormal, which I mean, again, there is a lot of stuff I think that gets miscategorized as paranormal phenomena when it's actually just something completely explainable and natural. But on the other hand, like in this particular place, the Eastern state penitentiary, I think there's absolutely actual paranormal phenomena happening where there's things that are happening that are unexplainable, that are very clear cut and tons and tons of people witness. So to start off, I wanted to briefly talk about based on kind of what ghost hunters and paranormal experts sort of say is the reason why places become haunted. Obviously, we all know that cemeteries, graveyards, prisons, hotels, places where there's a lot of people and there's potential for a lot of people to go through, you know, potentially dark events or tragedies or even death itself is going to be a place where you're going to find spirits or ghosts residing. But one of the theories that's out there that I find really interesting is this shades of gray theory. I guess you could call it a theory, but the way that this is explained is that each individual person is obviously unique in personality experience and obviously countless other factors. Therefore the imprint of a deceased human. So their spirit or ghost retains these specialized factors if they are unable to move on after death. Now, if you think about that for a second, right? So when you die, I think a lot of us just assume we're going to go, you know, boom, right to the next place. You know, we're not going to, there's no delay. You die, you immediately go to whatever's next and whatever you believe in, whether that's heaven, hell, or reincarnation or, or whatever belief system you have. But this idea that we could, our soul or spirit could somehow piece of it or all of it could remain here on the earth and just you know this other form is very interesting to to sort of comprehend i feel like and obviously we are all unique in our makeup and you know our personalities and as well as the events that we go through in life and the experiences that we have so all these different things sort of make up who we are and when we die is there a chance that some of that affects what happens next And that's what a lot of people believe. So many different factors exist to explain how a place becomes haunted because of the natural ability of humans to vary from each other on numerous levels. Do not expect each haunted location to be haunted for the same reasons since they are all haunted by different spirits and therefore different people with their own stories to tell the living. Many ghost hunters believe that spirits haunt places that are filled with strong negative emotions in order to tell the story of that area to living humans which is why these deceased entities tend to haunt places that are a source of their personal pain and sufferings since they want others to know of their own story in that location. And I feel what's really interesting to me is I feel like a lot of the paranormal activity that either we experience or ghost hunters experience comes from spirits that have had negative experiences happen to them or, you know, in the last moments of their life, there was major tragedy or loss and oftentimes that activity is generated by that negative entity and it it makes a lot of sense because if you think if everything was great and on earth and while you were alive that when you die you probably would be able to you know pass peacefully on to whatever's next but if you had a tragic end to your life or for whatever reason you felt like you couldn't leave this world behind after you died that you so much so that you wanted to stick around in some way 
I wonder if there's any control to that. Like, do we have any control over whether or not we can stick around or is there something unexplained or law or something like that, that ties us to the earth or this plane of existence where you're kind of trapped, you know, trapped in this in between limbo stage of, of life and death. And that hopefully if you know, you can, I guess, tell your story enough that eventually you're able to reconcile those things that caused you to stay here and then peacefully move on. I think that's what we all hope for all spirits is that they are eventually just move on. But it seems like that's not always the case and that sometimes they linger here on this, this plane of existence for years and years and years, if not forever. So when talking about paranormal activity though, it it also makes sense that ghosts would make noises or, you know, we would sense their movement. We would sense their own pain you know, a lot of people report in haunted locations feeling a sense of dread or fear or just like the air feels heavy and like almost feels like you're suffocating or your actual body feels ill. You know, you're actually feel like you're coming down with a sickness or the air gets extremely cold so to the point where you can see your breath because there is this negative entity or energy in the, the area that is causing this that's trying to make its presence known. And it's one thing to experience just paranormal activity where, you know, unexpected things happen, doors bang, you know, footsteps going down the hall. But it's a whole nother thing when you think about apparitions and people that have claimed to have seen full blown apparitions of these ghosts that that just takes it to a whole nother level. And it makes a lot of sense because wouldn't these ghosts want to resemble some form of who they once were? It, it only makes sense, right? Like why would they want to be completely invisible to the point where we can't see them at all? And, you know, it seems like a lot of them try to manifest themselves into some type of figure, whether it's a shadowy figure or, you know, a ghostly apparition. So it, it makes sense that they would, you know, want to try to maintain some level of, normalcy if they're stuck in this physical plane right so a lot of paranormal experts actually believe that that when they try to you know both make this whether it's unexplained noises sounds uh, or even you know make a semi appearance in some way shape or form they do this in order to just get your attention in hopes that you would actually investigate their life and investigate more about why you're having this experience why are you seeing an apparition why are you seeing a shadowy figure and in hopes that you will actually recognize them and call them out in a lot of ways and, and acknowledge their presence. And I think that's why a lot, you see a lot of ghost hunters and and paranormal people when they go into a haunted location, they actually vote, you know, call out to the spirits and attempt to make contact with them because, you know, they're going to try to get your attention in some way, shape or form. And a lot of times it's in very, very creepy ways, but at the same time, maybe there's, Maybe these spirits, you know, are just trying to be acknowledged so that hopefully, you know, you can help them, I guess, reconcile things that happened in their, you know, in their previous life and maybe they'll be able to move on. So I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to me how this all works. And again, I mean, this is just one theory. We don't know shit about any of this. Nobody really does. So this is all just speculation, but I think I think we're on the right track. I think we're starting to slowly understand how this, this alternate plane works and how the spirit world works. And obviously there's people that 
claim to be able to communicate with that side, be able to see the other side. So, I mean, I'm definitely a believer in the paranormal. I definitely believe there is this other plane of existence where spirits are, are dwelling and, you know, moving through or, or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think the main goal of, of spirits and the reason why there are these haunted places is just from the mere fact that they are trying to be noticed and be acknowledged. And obviously all these spirits have different levels of power and ability that not every single spirit can, you know, manifest into an actual figure. A lot of them can't do that at all. They can only make noises or, you know, do scary stuff like rub the back of your neck as, as they go by or something like that. But I don't know. I don't know what I, I totally think about all of it. And, and again, this shades of gray theory, I think makes a lot of sense. Now, another paranormal expert out there has said that there's essentially three types of hauntings. There's intelligent hauntings, residual hauntings, and intentional hauntings, which an intelligent haunting is exactly what it sounds like. It just means that the spirit is seemingly trying to interact intelligently with people and we've seen this more more times than not where spirits are actually vocalizing words you know like people use spirit boxes people just hear disembodied voices and sometimes you're able to make out actual words and things like that i always find that really fascinating when people capture you know actual bits and pieces of english words being said because that to me would be a spirit trying to communicate intelligently because they know that obviously we understand English and we're going to hear those words. So it makes sense. So that's intelligent haunting. A residual haunting is just a haunting that plays over and over again. It's kind of the same thing that is happening. And I, I like to think of that as more, you know, knocks and, you know, whispers or just footsteps or, you know, creaking of doors, things like that in houses where you know doesn't matter who goes in there or how long it's been it just sort of always happens and there's really no explanation for it right and i remember seeing an episode on ghost adventures when they were investigating the house and the paranormal activity that the family was experiencing one of the big things was the family would constantly hear footsteps going up their stairs to the second floor and Zach and, and the rest of the investigators, I think they concluded at the end of that, knowing that the previous person living in the house was an older gentleman who ended up passing away, I believe, by natural death. But it was his constant daily routine of him going up those stairs, going back down the stairs. So to me, it makes me feel like if, if somebody was doing a certain thing over and over and over again, and then when they pass on to the next life, it's possible that like the patterns, the, that yeah. same thing just continues to happen. It's like a loop. I mean, it's, it's, if you think about it in, in the sense of the shades of gray, it, that man left an imprint on that house because he probably lived in the house for a long time. He was very tied to it. And so instead of leaving it completely, when he passed, he left, you know, sort of a piece of himself there. And it's not, you know, him as like this figure that's like roaming around the house, but it's just this, like you said, this action that he did over and over again over the years. And, you know, maybe you're able to sort of leave your mark on a place that you're really connected to. And maybe that's what he did. He just left his mark by having footsteps be heard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's freaky for the people that live there. Cause you're like, what the hell? I don't see anything, but I hear these footsteps. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean it's like something sinister or evil right. happening. And it's just 
uh, a result of somebody passing and it's a totally normal thing. Like maybe this phenomena or this paranormal activity that we're experiencing is just part of the process. Like obviously it's, it's different on a case by case basis, but maybe it's just how it works. I mean, we don't really know how, how it works when you die. So maybe that's what happens. But with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the Eastern state penitentiary and hopefully giving you a little overview on hauntings and sort of how they might work and how a place actually becomes haunted will be helpful to you when we go through the history of the Eastern state penitentiary. Cause I think getting that bit of background information is going to help make this make a lot more sense to you. And you're going to realize like, Hey, yeah, there's obviously a lot of history here. So this place is definitely haunted. But before we jump into that, I want to thank our first sponsors for today. Terms apply. All right. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the history of the Eastern state penitentiary. So this prison opened its doors to inmates for the very first time in 1829. That's how old this place is. It's located at 2027 Fairmont Avenue in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it was built to be an inescapable fortress that symbolized the transformation of the prison system in America. In the early 19th century, prisons were generally just large holding areas with no individual cells and no separate areas for different crimes, ages, or genders even. It was common for prisoners to freeze to death, die of starvation, or sustain serious or life-threatening injuries at the hands of fellow inmates. Because, yeah, they're all together. I mean, Kim, that'd be really fucking terrible. Can you imagine a prison where, like, males and females were all just mixed in together, like, in today's times? Like, that would be... <laughs> that would be so crazy. That would be horrible. I yeah. can't even imagine the shit that would go down if, if that was a thing these days. The era of prison reform started in Pennsylvania after the American Revolution. It was led by Benjamin Franklin just a few years before his death in 1790 and a group called the Philadelphia Society for alleviating the miseries of public prisons. Based on the Quaker ideology, the new prison system was built on the belief that people were inherently good and only committed crimes due to their environment. The theory was that if they were disciplined through a combination of isolation and labor, they would become penitent, which in Quaker terms means being sorry for your sins and accepting penance. This is where the word penitentiary actually originated from, which I don't think a lot of people even know that. This system of labor and isolation was called the Pennsylvania system, or separate system. And the labor performed by prisoners was often a legitimate trade, such as working as a weaver, a shoemaker, or even a tailor. And despite what our modern prison system has become, and what the Eastern State Penitentiary eventually became, Benjamin Franklin envisioned a system that would reform people convicted of crimes. And this original concept was based on the rehabilitation of prisoners, not punishment. Now, funding for the Eastern State Penitentiary was approved in 1821. A British architect named John Haviland designed the prison to hold an initial 250 inmates in seven cell blocks fanned out from long hallways and anchored to a central rotunda or circular structure. The shape resembled a wagon wheel. When standing in the center of the circular structure, guards could see down every hallway of the seven cell blocks, which I guess makes some sense that you're going to build it kind of like a wheel so that you could be in the middle and see all different sections or cell blocks. And I think part of the reason for that was it made it to where the prison didn't need to have a ton of staff in a sense. I mean, they still needed staff, obviously, but 
just to have one person in the round tower who has angles in every direction and having those cells just lined up just allowed that to, to be a bit easier, I suppose. But then again, I mean, if there's only one person in the round tower, like I'm sure they weren't able to catch as much stuff as they should have, you know? So, well, you got to think if, if the, the middle rotunda is the only place being staffed, then how are they able to see to the end of each cell block all the way down to the end? I mean, this is a very, very large, uh, actual prison. So, I mean, I'm sure they had people walking up and down each cell block, but at the same time, I think that they thought they were being more efficient by building it in this sort of style and architecture. But at the end of the day, it definitely did not work out that way because each cell in each cell block measured 12 feet by seven feet. Now think about that for a second, a cell 12 feet by seven feet. That is a very, very small place to be all day, all night, every single day. Prisoners literally spent 23 hours a day in the 12 by seven cell and they were given two half hour breaks per day for solitary exercise time and were brought to be bathed every week or every other week. And that was the thing about this prison was there. The idea was that prisoners never actually came in contact with each other. You were completely solitary. You were not allowed to interact with anybody, talk to anybody, actually physically be with anybody. And so you were completely separated from everything else at all times. Your meals were fed to you through holes carved out of the stone walls, and the original design of the cells didn't even have doors. Prisoners actually entered the cells from the individual exercise yards outside of each cell. Even the exercise yards were separate for everybody. There was no place at which prisoners could congregate or come in contact with each other at all at this place. And the prison designed their piping system, which controlled, you know, the toilets. They actually did have flushing toilets in their cells, which was really big back then compared to other prisons and the conditions that we were talking about earlier. But they designed the prison where the the pipes were actually on the outside of the cells. And they did that to, you know, eliminate the possibility of inmates being able to communicate through pipes back and forth to each other. So just going back to like really making it a solitary type of experience. Yeah. Well, the, the whole premise of this sort of philosophy for prisoners was to, you know, if you keep somebody in solitary long enough and away from each other, that eventually that person in and make them do labor, you're, they're eventually going to, it's going to rehabilitate them to the point where, you know, they repent from their sins And, you know, they sort of are able to come back to society, I guess, or, you know, be a better person at the end of the day, which literally makes no sense to me. I mean, when you actually see this place, you're like, I don't see how anybody would be rehabilitated in an environment like this. Now, the prison grounds covered over 10 acres and there was 30 foot tall walls surrounded by it. When you look at this thing from the outside and from, you know, an aerial view, it literally looks like this giant fortress and there's this huge walls around it. And yeah, it looks, it does look inescapable. It does look like a place where once you go in, you're never coming out of it. What's crazy is that they made the inmates perform their labor completely alone in their cells. And we're also expected to be silent most of the time. So you can't even talk to yourself. Like what kind of life is that where you are not allowed to talk and you're literally in your cell 23 hours a day 
working too. You're doing physical labor inside of your cell in silence. They weren't allowed to have any sort of contact with the outside world at all, which meant that they weren't permitted to write letters, receive visitors, or even read newspapers. I always wonder how people that are in prison, especially in solitary confinement, like don't just go insane after like a day. Because I think at some point, once you completely lose track of time and reality, I mean, it seems like all of us would just slip into madness almost immediately. Like, can you imagine going through your day or life not knowing what time it was or what day it was or what was happening in the outside world? Literally, your entire world revolves around this 12 by 7 cell. That to me is one of the most scary things, honestly, about about prison just in general is being in a cell just seems like probably one of the worst things that you could experience in life. And especially doing that all by yourself, not having anybody to talk to, not having any way to communicate, no nothing from the outside world coming in. To me, that just seems like straight torture. Absolutely. And still to this day, solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments that the criminal justice system can put somebody through. Because like you said, it's literally mental torture. And then when you take out the social interaction aspect as well, yeah, I would think anybody who would go through that would eventually would become insane because there's only so many conversations somebody can have with themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you can't talk to anybody else, then like, what do you do? I just, I don't get how at, even at the very beginning, they didn't think that that was going to be an issue to put people in solitary confinement. Like who, who thought that that was going to rehabilitate anybody? That just seems like common sense. Like, Mm -hmm. Why, why don't the people that designed the prison go lock themselves in a fucking cell for, right. for 23 hours a day for a Seriously, week and see yeah. how it is Cause, and see if it has a positive effect on somebody. I don't think there's any way, shape, or form that's going to have a positive effect on anybody, especially somebody that's already either mentally ill or somebody that is violent or you know not in a good place in their life whatsoever. I feel like that's only going to enrage them more it's only going to cause, you know, create more danger for the guards that are there to keep the prisoners, you know, safe. And it just doesn't make any sense to me at all that, that they did this. So when the guards would move the prisoners around the prison, they would actually make them wear masks and black hoods in order to prevent interaction and keep them from learning the prison's layout. And despite the lack of contact with each other and the outside world, Inmates were allowed to have pets like cats, rabbits, and birds. That, I will say, is about the only positive to this prison is the fact that they allowed the inmates to have pets. Because I think if you're allowed to have a pet, you slip into madness a little bit slower. Yeah. Or your right. pet becomes your your best friend and companion and the person or the living being that you talk to. And I, I don't understand why today all prisons don't have a program where obviously if you're good behavior and you're not going to kill the animal Mm -hmm. that why not give prisoners, you know, all these animals that needs homes and shelters and stuff. I mean, cats are, I have cats. Cats are great animals for a small space like that. Rabbits are also a really great pet 
for that type of, of environment as well. If you have a little area for them, you know, and the right food and, and different supplies that they need, then yeah, a rabbit could be a great, great little companion, a bird. I don't know so much. I feel like a bird just be fucking annoying to hear, <laughs> you know, a bird chirping or, you know, I don't know what kind of birds they'd give them if it was like a parrot or something that <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine how pissed some other inmates would be if they had right. to listen to, I mean, Joel and I had a fucking, uh, what was it? A canary. It was a cockatiel. We had a canary too. Yeah. Right? And a canary. What Brutus, the fucking canary. Yep. Brutus. And we'd then... have to throw a fucking towel on his cage every night because <laughs> his ass would start like singing and, and going yeah. off in the morning. Squawking. Just like annoying crazy. all day, all night. It's just like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of a bird hater as you can tell, <laughs> but cats and rabbits love them. But in the spring of 1829, the legislation for the separate or solitary confinement of labor for prisoners finally passed. Now, this new system officially replaced the dysfunctional and dangerous large holding areas that characterized prisons at the time. A few months later, on October 25, 1829, Eastern State Penitentiary accepted its first inmate, a man named Charles Williams, who had been sentenced to serve two years at the prison for theft. So at this particular time, they did not do mugshots. They did not do fingerprints. Obviously, it's fucking 1800s. So they would literally just assign prisoners a number, and then they would track them by that as well as a rudimentary description of their physical appearance. This first inmate, Charles Williams, his description was prisoner number one, burglar, light black skin, five feet, seven inches tall, foot, 11 inches, scar on nose, scar on thigh, broad mouth, black eyes, farmer by trade, can read. Theft included one $20 watch, one $3 gold seal, and a gold key. Sentenced to two years confinement with labor. That's what the warden had written down for the very first inmate that they received. That's a fucking harsh sentence for for what? Stealing a, a $3 gold seal, $20 watch? But I guess back then that was probably like fucking $2,000. But still, two years in fucking solitary confinement for that? That's a bit extreme. That's a little fucking extreme <laughs> if you ask me. I don't see how that's going to help this this guy. So he was the first inmate at the Eastern State Penitentiary. And at the time, some of the seven cell blocks were still under construction, and the final four were built two stories high instead of the original planned one because of the demand to accommodate more inmates, bringing the total number of cells to 450. I feel like that's always the game with prisons. They try to pack and cram as many bodies into it as they possibly can whether or not it's safe or humane for them to do that. Right. And still to this day, we have lots of prisons in the United States where the populations just over exceed how many cells are available. So they're like, Oh, no cells. No problem. We'll just throw all you guys in the gym and (laughs) just let you guys be in there. So just absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. Yeah. If you've ever seen that show 60 days in, that's a great show to give you some idea of what the fucking, and that's just not even prisons. Yeah. That's, that's just jail. jails. Yep. That's just 60 days in the fucking County jail. <laughs> yeah. And those are horrible. They don't even have enough bunks for everybody. You're fucking laying on the ground on a little mat. Like mm-hmm. can't even imagine what it was like back then though. In 18 fucking 36, which was when the prison was actually completed. Now the people at the time took the notion of prison reform very seriously. They're striving to create a more pleasant environment for prisoners through striking architecture and modern technologies like central heating, running water, flushing toilets, like Joel said, and skylights. 
So their, their whole approach is very bizarre, right? They're like, we're going to give them some modern technologies, some comforts to try to help in their rehabilitation, but they're going to be fucking in solitary confinement at the same time. But these skylights are actually kind of cool because I feel like so many prisons, they, they lack any sort of fucking daylight coming through any sort of window there. And the Eastern state penitentiary has these big skylights that some referred to as dead eye or eye of God. So at least they got to see a little bit of, of sunlight. I mean, God, there's prisons today that I'm just like, how the fuck is this humane at all? They're literally not seeing the light of day period and distort like nothing. It's all fucking those horrible artificial. I don't know about you guys, but I fucking hated the lights in schools. Those overhead fucking flat lights are in like office buildings. Oh yeah. Yeah. I forget what they're called. Fluorescent lights or whatever. Mm -hmm. I hate those lights. Like I living in like a hospital, you know, those bright ass fucking lights that are, you know, flat hated them. I mean, I get migraines and headaches all the time. I, I wish I could have like gone through school with sunglasses on all the time. Because <laughs> yeah. They're that fucking for bad. real. And that's what prisons are like now. They keep them on all the time. In a lot of places, they just keep them on. They don't even turn the lights off sometimes. So Eastern state penitentiary was one of the most expensive structures ever built for the time. And it had a heating system and running water even before the actual white house did. That's fucking crazy to think about. And it had a total price tag of 770000 which is over $2.1 million in today's money. And the prison was the second most expensive government-funded building in the U.S. behind only the Capitol building. With its vaulted ceilings and intimidating Gothic exterior, the Eastern State Penitentiary looked like a medieval castle. And it quickly became a tourist attraction, <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. with over 10,000 visitors in 1858 alone its most popular year. So that it's just so bizarre. They're like, we built this whole thing to rehabilitate prisoners yet. It ends up being this fucking horrible place and people are visiting it like a tourist attraction. They're like, Oh, this is nice. Look how, look how cool this architecture is. They've got running water and heat in there. Wow. Meanwhile, they're, you know, everybody <laughs> in, in the prison, all the prisoners are wishing they were dead. Like right. it's so, it's just so fucking weird to think about. And I know they built it this way as well to be a very intimidating like appearance to it. I mean, I get a tourist are just like, this is beautiful. You know, this is so nice. But can you imagine being an inmate, you know, taking the bus to the prison and like you're looking at it like, holy shit, like how am I going to escape from this thing? You know? Yeah. Or what's it going to be like inside? Like it, it does have this ominous look to it from the outside definitely reminds me of a medieval castle you know it's almost like you're going to like dracula's castle or something like some evil villain you know holes up inside of it and you're about to meet them when you roll into this place because it does look fucking frightening from the outside what's interesting though is that the eastern state penitentiary was actually the most progressive prison in the world at the time and over 300 other prisons across the globe were actually modeled after it And with that being said, modern advances in the prison continued. And by 1907, cell block three was converted to a full medical center, complete with labs, a pharmacy, an operating room, and a recovery ward. And the Eastern State Penitentiary was operating all the way up until 1971. And it has held some of the most infamous criminals of all time. 
One of those infamous prisoners was none other than notorious Chicago mob boss, Al Capone, who was actually locked away at the Eastern State Penitentiary for eight months in 1929 and 1930 for carrying a concealed deadly weapon into a movie theater. And this was actually his first arrest. And it's theorized that he was arrested on purpose in order to protect himself. After he had ordered hits on rival mob bosses during the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre, where seven mobsters were shot execution style by men disguised as police officers, Al Capone was able to avoid swift retaliation by being safely locked away at the Eastern State Penitentiary. Al Capone was housed in the Park Avenue block in what has been described as a luxury cell. It featured ornate furniture, a polished wooden desk, oriental rugs, soft lighting, decorative paintings, and one of the top entertainment forms in the era, a cabinet radio, which is like, it's, it's like, why did this guy get hooked up with all this stuff? It, it literally looks like a little like hotel room or something at the time. And yeah, they gave Al Capone all of that. And I believe you can actually go on a tour of the prison and actually go to his room still. And they have it all set up the way that it was when he stayed there. But on March 27, 1930, Al Capone was scheduled to be released and a large crowd gathered outside the prison. Fearing his enemies would hide in the crowd, Capone arranged to be secretly transferred out of Eastern State Penitentiary early in the day. And just one month after he was released, he was one of the first criminals listed as public enemy number one by the Chicago Crime Commission, a term reserved for the most dangerous criminals. Another infamous criminal named William Francis Sutton, or a.k.a. Slick Willie, was also imprisoned at the Eastern State Penitentiary for 11 years. Slick Willie was a career criminal who pulled off over 50 bank robberies and escaped prison three times. He was convicted in 1934 for the so-called machine gun bank robbery of the Corn Exchange Bank. And in 1945, Slick Willie escaped Eastern State Penitentiary with 11 other prisoners through a tunnel dug nearly 100 feet into the ground. He was recaptured later that day, though. And throughout the 142 years the prison operated, more than 100 inmates escaped from the Eastern State Penitentiary, but only one was never found. That's crazy to think that people even escaped from this place at all. Clearly made it so that you couldn't, but people still found a way. And I know one of the main methods that these inmates used to escape was obviously they would tie up bed sheets, throw it out the window, and just rappel down. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what happened with Leo Callahan, who was convicted of assault and battery with the intent to kill. In 1923, Leo Callahan and five armed inmates made it past the unarmed guards and used a makeshift wooden ladder to scale the east wall of the prison and escape. All of his accomplices were eventually caught, including one who had made it to Honolulu, but Callahan had never been found. The first escape took place just a few years after the prison opened. An inmate who worked as a servant for the warden escaped from the roof on two separate occasions in 1832 and 1837. He slid down a sheet from the roof and landed right on the street, but obviously he was recaptured after both incidents. Another man who worked as a blacksmith in the prison managed to create a working key for the front gate and slipped out when the guard went on break. In 1927, William Bishy, an inmate who worked as a trusted electrical engineer at the prison, escaped with another inmate named William Lynch by throwing a guard off of a corner tower. William Lynch was caught a few days later after escape, but William Bishy was missing for seven years before he was recaptured. The most elaborate escape plan 
ever executed happened in April of 1945. It involved 12 inmates in an underground tunnel. A plaster worker was the mastermind behind the construction of the tunnel, and it was dug by pairs of inmates working in 30-minute shifts. They dug with crude tools like flattened cans and spoons, and the tunnel eluded authorities partly because it was only 31 inches wide at the opening, and most of the 12 men were recaptured within hours, and among them was, of course, Slick Willie. Of course, Slick Willie can slide right through the 31-inch opening in the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But after these inmates were recaptured, they were moved to cell block 13, the so-called punishment block. And in cell block 13, the cells were darker and prisoners who resided there were always given less food rations. But as time went on, this Quaker-inspired dream of isolation turning into repentance for prisoners and rehabilitation started to slip away as early as the 1870s. New cell blocks were built in the decades following the prison's opening and they were wedged in between the existing buildings. And these new cells did not include private exercise areas for inmates. And in order to ensure prisoners stayed isolated, they were forced to wear hoods with tiny eye holes while exercising outside amongst other inmates. Ominous mirrors were placed down every hallway so guards could watch over the prisoners and ensure there was no communication happening. If an inmate broke the separate system rules by communicating with other inmates in any way, they were punished. Limiting food and time outdoors were the most common forms of punishment, but within the cell block 13, much more sinister punishments were doled out by guards than just dim lighting and less food. During the winter months, guards suspended prisoners from walls after submerging them in cold water. In extreme weather conditions, ice formed on the inmate's skin. That's fucking crazy to think about because that that does remind me of like a medieval dungeon. Mm Mm-hmm. That's something that they would have done in the medieval days. They do crazy ass shit like that. God, that must have been so horrible. So cold, like hanging on the side of a wall that crystals are forming. Ice icicles are hanging off of your body. That's fucking insane. Guards actually had a chair that they called the mad chair. Inmates were tied tightly enough to the mad chair that their circulation was cut off, sometimes resulting in permanent injuries or amputations. Guards also punish inmates for talking by putting an iron gag in their mouths and tying their hands painfully behind their backs. The iron gag was square in shape and designed to cut open an inmate's mouth and tongue. One inmate died after being punished with the iron gag. On June 27, 1833, guards used the iron gag to torture 44-year-old Matthias McComsey. The gag was put into his mouth and secured with chains around his neck and arms, pulling his arms behind his back. When Matthias tried to relieve the painful pressure on his arms by letting them fall forward, the iron gag was forced further into his mouth, tearing open the insides of his cheeks and his tongue. Matthias's cause of death was listed as apoplexy. In modern terms, apoplexy is when a stroke or cerebral hemorrhage causes a person to lose consciousness and die. And in the 19th century, this cause of death could be listed for any person who died suddenly. However, Matthias likely died as a result of severe bleeding. So at this point in time, they went away from, you know, we leave prisoners in solitary confinement long enough for them to repent from their sins to just straight up fucking torturing people. I mean, these are straight up torture devices that they're using in order to punish prisoners that is in fact resulting in their death. Apparently, these severe and inhumane forms of punishment have been linked back to Warden Herbert Hard-boiled Smith, 
who ran the prison in the 1920s and 1930s. The Eastern State Penitentiary came under scrutiny for its strict and controversial rules around solitude as early as 1830, which is shortly after the prison opened. After visiting the prison, Charles Dickens was very disturbed by what he saw there. He wrote, The system is rigid, strict, and hopeless solitary confinement, and I believe it, in its effects, to be cruel and wrong. He went on to compare solitary confinement to being buried alive. The first investigation of the prison took place in 1834 for the alleged abuse of prisoners by the guards. Despite the supposed lack of interaction between inmates and guards, similar allegations would continue to surface for years. The use of solitary confinement itself was questioned as a potentially cruel form of punishment, and to make matters worse, solitary confinement was not proven to be effective in reforming inmates at all. By the 1860s, inmates at Eastern State Penitentiary were receiving longer sentences, meaning they were spending a much larger chunk of their lives living in complete solitude. As demand for more space increased, solitude became less of a regular practice. By 1866, inmates were being paired up in cells. Once prisoners were housed together in cells, they were allowed to send letters and receive some visitors. By the early 20th century, the practice of complete solitude was relaxed, including records of prison baseball teams forming by 1909. The Pennsylvania system's central premise of isolating prisoners to encourage repentance and reformation was officially abolished in 1913. But Eastern State Penitentiary seemed to always trade one evil practice for another. The so-called punishment block, or cell block 13, included especially heinous features and practices. Block 13 wasn't fully constructed until 1926, and it was also referred to as, quote-unquote, the hole, or Klondike. This block had 10 small cells that measured only 8 feet by 4 feet, and the ceilings were just 8 feet high. This is being locked into a closet. Prisoners could be kept in a solitary confinement in block 13 cells for up to a month. A lesser known area of the prison was underneath cell block 14. This area was also called the hole, though it seemed more deserving of the sinister title. This was a literal hole in the ground dug out under cell block 14. It was infested with rats and cockroaches and inmates could be locked inside for weeks with little food and water. And when inside the hole, there was virtually no light and only small spaces where air could seep through. Block 13 was closed for good in 1959, but it was effectively replaced by cell block 15, or Death Row, which had opened in 1956. Death Row was the last addition to Eastern State Penitentiary, and with its construction complete, the prison totaled 1,000 cells. While inmates sentenced to death lived at Eastern State Penitentiary, they were transferred elsewhere actually to be put to death. But that doesn't mean that prisoners didn't die there. Philadelphia was hit hard by the 1918 influenza pandemic, and when the first prisoner at Eastern State Penitentiary got sick on September 30, 1918, the warden, Robert McKenty, locked down the prison. He banned all outside visitors and halted all types of public gatherings of inmates, including church services. While the city of Philadelphia lost 12,000 people to the pandemic in the first several weeks, the strict social distancing policies and extreme isolation procedures kept the inmates relatively healthy. Inmates continued to be transferred in and out of prison, but when prisoners got sick, they were immediately quarantined in the prison hospital, and staff then scrubbed their cells with formaldehyde. In total, that fall, 63 prisoners and 42 officers got sick. Christopher Hines, a 33-year-old guard, was the first person associated with the prison to die of influenza-induced pneumonia. He died on October 11, 1918. 
The first prisoner died the following day. His name was Joseph Deal, and he was a 23-year-old painter. And then the following week, 22-year-old Stuart Clugston died, and a week later, 38-year-old Andrew Conway died. Approximately 4.6% of the prison's population contracted the flu that fall, but out of the 1,350 incarcerated people at, at the prison, these were the only three deaths from the 1918 influenza pandemic. The prison's death rate was just 0.2% of the incarcerated population, and by contrast, the city of Philadelphia's death rate was 0.75% of the population during the same period. After 43 days of lockdown, the warden lifted the quarantine on November 10, 1918, and a Catholic mass and service of songs were held shortly after. But even after enduring this pandemic, in the years following, the Eastern State Penitentiary continued to increase the number of inmates they housed there. Over 1,700 inmates were crammed inside the walls of the prison by 1926, and at this point, each cell housed two or three inmates instead of the intended one. What's really weird is that the prison was actually recognized for changing from what it had originally started as and it now was you know this nice prison and there was all these things for prisoners to do and yet they weren't actually taking a look at the fact that the prison was severely overcrowded at this point so much so that in 1933 inmates set fire to their cells in protest of the excessive overcrowding another riot broke out in 1934 in response to low wages for labor and this time prisoners started fires by shorting out electrical outlets. But the largest riot to ever take place at the Eastern State Penitentiary happened in January of 1961 when they were protesting the punishment block or cell block 13. 30 inmates banded together and started the uprising and they beat the shit out of the guards and then released everyone being housed in the punishment block. The riot went on for several hours and state troopers were even brought in along with police and prison guards in order to finally put a stop to it. Inmates had actually stolen a vehicle from the garage and tried to escape. They were stopped by a combination of tear gas and billy clubs in a police operation called Operation Breakout. The inmates were fully justified to protest the solitary confinement practices at the prison because, as we all know, long-term isolation causes a variety of severe mental health issues, according to modern studies. These can include panic disorders, paranoia, insomnia, aggression, anxiety, and depression. The theory behind isolation practices is further flawed because prolonged periods of solitude do nothing to reform prisoners. In fact, it is harder to re-enter society and less likely that a person will stay away from a life of crime if they've endured long periods of solitary confinement. And what's crazy is that these prisoners that were enduring solitary confinement obviously was having a major effect on their mental health. And when they started showing the symptoms of depression or paranoia or just straight on being crazy and out of control they were punished very very severely so much so that they were put in straight jackets they were starved for three days uh, no water i mean just the things that the guards would do was e extremely horrible and horrific i guess it somewhat makes sense that in the late 1800s early 1900s our knowledge on mental health and what solitary confinement can do to a human we really didn't know that much about or what the long-term effects were because as the years went on and you know the solitary sort of philosophy was applied the numbers of inmates that were reported as being insane just grew and grew and grew over time and obviously as time went on getting into the later 1900s we started figuring out that hey solitary confinement is not the right way to go about doing this and plus 
the prison was actually continuing to bring on more and more people. So people weren't in solitary confinement for very long. And what's wild is that despite all of these serious concerns that were happening about the prisoners that are being housed within the walls of the Eastern state penitentiary, it was given national historic landmark status in 1965. But in total, approximately 80,000 inmates were held at the prison altogether. And in 1970, the prison closed and it reopened the same year briefly to temporary house prisoners from a nearby county prison who were involved in a riot. And the last of these prisoners were transferred out of the prison in 1971. Of these 80,000 people, Eastern State Penitentiary recorded 1,000 entries in the death ledger. And this document included the name, the cause of death, and the year of death for each inmate who died in the prison. Often, the cause of death listed was vague or bizarre. In one entry from 1859, an inmate was listed as a, with a cause of death of masturbation. The youngest inmate to die at the prison was an 11-year-old girl named Mary Ash. She was convicted of arson and died in 1876, two years after entering the prison. Her death was listed as tuberculosis, which was a common cause of death for prisoners at this time. Cases of tuberculosis surged in 1881 and 1882, which made the death rates those years exceptionally high. Also in 1881, one of the inmates murdered his cellmate and then completed suicide, and two inmates completed suicide in 1882, increasing the death rate even further for those two years. Another instance of murder amongst inmates didn't take place until February 5, 1940, when a prisoner named Joseph Havel murdered his cellmate with nothing more than an ordinary pair of scissors. Until the mid-1980s, though, Eastern State Penitentiary was largely abandoned, except for a caretaker, a man named Dan McLeod, who came to feed the stray cats who lived on the prison grounds. The city used a few of the buildings for storage, and the only visitors were those who came to vandalize the property. In 1974, Philadelphia's mayor, Frank Rizzo, proposed demolishing the prison and building a criminal justice center at the site. But eventually, a group of individuals, including architects, historians, and preservationists, called for the Eastern State Task Force to come together and propose saving the building and turning it into a historic landmark status by preserving it and making it a museum and tourist attraction. What's interesting is that in 1991, a group started an annual Halloween fundraiser called Terror Behind the Walls in order to raise money to create a program for tours which would sustain the structure and a staff to care for it. And this even goes on today. There's actually videos of people going to Terror Behind the Walls. I think it'd be great place to do like a haunted attraction at, at a haunted prison i mean what a more perfect place is there than right and a haunted prison for a haunted house to take place and even to this day if you're interested in taking a tour of it you can you can do that they've got day and night tours and people that take the night tours often report experiencing paranormal activity so with that being said let's get into the paranormal activity but before I do that, I'd like to thank our last sponsors for today. What's up? All right. So let's talk about what we all came here today to hear about the actual paranormal activity that has been experienced at the Eastern State Penitentiary. Because obviously a place with a history like they have with so much violence, death, mayhem, and madness, it's no wonder that so many different people have experienced supernatural occurrences at this prison. In fact, it is considered to be one of the most haunted locations in the world. The record of unexplained phenomena at the Eastern State Penitentiary dates back to Al Capone's stay in 1929 and 1930. One of the men killed at the Valentine's Day Massacre 
which Al Capone was responsible for, was known by the name Jimmy Clark. Inmates in adjoining cells to Al Capone often heard him screaming in agony as he begged someone named Jimmy to leave him alone. Guards would frequently check on Al Capone during these episodes, and they would find him visibly shaken and disturbed, but ultimately alone in his cell. Inmates and staff have frequently reported sudden flashes of ghostly faces and other visions in cell block 4, including shadowy figures in cell block 6. These ghostly figures dart rapidly across the walls. In cell block 12, inmates heard eerie voices and cackling laughter all through the night. And in modern times, this prison area has never been refurbished and is in too much disrepair to allow tourists and visitors. Disturbing occurrences at Eastern State Penitentiary have persisted through the years. Countless visitors and staff have heard spontaneous sounds of wailing, whispering, and hushed giggles. Each year, dozens of ghost hunters and paranormal investigators spend time in Eastern State Penitentiary looking for evidence of the paranormal. According to their assistant program director, these investigations usually find solid proof of paranormal activity. A skeptical tour guide who took an innocent picture inside cell block 2 captured the image of a specter standing completely upright. Being a skeptic, she tried to explain it away, but couldn't come up with the logical explanation. On multiple occasions, a shadowy figure has been seen at the top of the guard tower. The figure appears to be the silhouette of a guard standing watch over the yard below. In the 1990s, a locksmith named Gary Johnson was working in cell block 4 when he experienced one of the most profound paranormal experiences ever described. Gary's job was to remove a 140-year-old lock from one of the cell doors, located between a private exercise area and the baseball field. When he turned the key, suddenly, Gary felt completely paralyzed by a powerful unseen force. Many believe this force was actually the trapped spirits that were finally able to escape when Gary turned the key. During this entire episode, Gary felt displaced from his body as if his spirit was being controlled by something else. He was forcefully pulled toward the negative energy that had been released. This negative energy took the form of spirits circling all around him, and Gary continued to be pulled in by the dominant force. The faces of tortured souls appeared on the wall in front of him as the hundreds of spirits flew faster and faster around the room. Even years later, Gary would shake with fright when describing the spirits that exploded from the cell and the terrifying energy they brought with them. In cell block 6, multiple witnesses have seen a person clearly walking ahead and through a doorway. By the time each witness makes it to the doorway, they clearly see that the person had vanished into thin air. Cell block 12 is still known for high-pitched cackling laughter, just as it was by inmates decades ago. Tour guides have reported that doors on this block opened on their own, with many guides verifying that no one else had been around to open and shut them, or lock the doors. In cell block 15, or death row, people have heard whispers, and multiple witnesses have reported seeing a shadowy figure running at full speed ahead of them. During an episode of the TV show Ghost Hunters, the crew experienced several paranormal occurrences. They heard strange sounds while standing inside Al Capone's cell, disembodied voices that were recorded, and the creepy voice of a little girl, and unexplained footsteps, as well as a figure walking out of the last cell in Block 12, which was all caught on tape. The Travel Channel show Portals to Hell examined the dark history and paranormal activities inside the prison. The hosts Jack and Katrina interviewed people who experienced strange things inside the prison, including a self-proclaimed skeptic who was still visibly shaken by his experience. He described hearing a voice saying, 
watch your back. During his visit to the prison, Jack and Katrina believe the trauma experienced within the prison walls by people who live there is concentrated energy. That energy has opened a portal to another realm of existence and released spirits from within it. They witness this energy firsthand when visiting the prison. A psychic medium walked through the prison with him, pinpointing eerily accurate details about life at the prison, including the hood inmates were forced to wear when they were transported from place to place. They recorded disembodied voices, knocking sounds, and unexplained interference with their equipment, including an unseen force turning a physical dial. During investigations, voices are often caught by spirit boxes, which capture electronic voice phenomenon. And according to investigators, they believe these electronic recordings are of actual spirit voices. One of the biggest pieces of phenomena that is captured by almost everybody that goes in to investigate the prison is EVP or electronic voice phenomenon, which you capture this with a device known as a spirit box, which scans radio frequencies at a very high rate of speed. And oftentimes you're able to pick up on words. Sometimes it's only one word. Sometimes it's a series of a few words, or maybe even if you're lucky, a full sentence. But numerous people, I mean, there's clips all over YouTube of people capturing literal words being said that are captured by these spirit boxes and voice recorders. Recent visitors to the prison have reported feeling chilled to the bone while inside the decaying, rotting walls, and they often describe a strong, vivid sense of the walls closing in on them. I mean, yeah, the the space inside this prison is extremely small. I could imagine that it would feel like things are closing in on you. People also hear footsteps out in the yards and sounds of footsteps pacing in cells. Visitors to the infirmary are disturbed by the feeling of being watched by an unseen evil presence. At more times than not, people have heard unexplained voices, blood-curdling screams, and the sounds of people crying uncontrollably, as if they're in a great deal of pain. And despite all of that paranormal activity and evidence that's been collected at the Eastern State Penitentiary, the staff and the leadership at the Eastern State Penitentiary insist that their prison is not haunted, and they often push back on people that have ghost stories or bring evidence forth that it's just you know made up or they're you know being disrespectful to the real people who lived and died within those prisons' walls. But at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure most of that evidence is 100% legit and should be taken seriously because there's absolutely paranormal activity happening within the walls of this prison even today. I mean, I watched a number of different YouTube videos of people walking around touring it at night, especially that were hearing footsteps and almost like whispering of voices and, you know, doors knocking and all of that. And I'll see if we can play a little bit of, of somebody's tour in here so you can kind of hear some of this phenomena. Another voice was captured on this camera's audio. If not, I'll definitely link some some different videos for you to check out below because it is a really cool place to to take a look at. And I would love to visit it in real life one day and do one of the night tours and conduct my own paranormal investigation. I think that would be a lot of fun and this place is definitely haunted in my opinion. And one of the most credible paranormal investigators out there, in my opinion, are, you know, the ghost adventures on travel channel. And they actually did a complete investigation on this prison and they did capture a lot of the things that you just mentioned. 
at the end of that episode, yeah, it was very clear to me that this prison is in fact haunted. Absolutely. I mean, it only makes sense with the history that's there, the number of people, the number of souls that have come through that place. And the, I mean, over a thousand people in the death ledger and the horrible deaths that many of them faced and the torture that was endured there. It would make absolute sense that a lot of these people that died there imprinted on that prison and are pissed and they're angry about what happened to them. And so they're sort of haunting this place in order to try and get, you know, recognized for what, what went on there. And, you know, I don't know, I, I hope I can go check it out one day. Cause I'd like to see sort of how the, you know, the museum presents information. I know when I went to Alcatraz and stuff, they definitely try to like sugarcoat everything and try and try not to make it seem as horrible or, you know, as, as much of an evil place that it actually was, but I don't know, man, this sounds like an absolutely place out of hell. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being stuck in solitary confinement, let alone being inside these 30 foot walls where, you know, you, you are literally coming face to face with some of the worst things that you could possibly imagine. So I, I believe 100% that this prison is haunted and you know, the, paranormal activity that's been captured there is is totally legit and to anyone out there that's skeptical about whether or not this is haunted i would just say go there you know go there and do one of the night tours and see what happens and i'll bet you anything that something will happen you know whether it's just a, a unexplained sound or you know you see a door open or close on its own any of that is still you know paranormal activity it's something that we can't explain so something's going on there you know whether or not you believe in spirits or not so you will have to definitely let us know what you guys think about this. Have you ever visited there? If you have, what experiences have you had at the Eastern State Penitentiary? As well as, you know, would you be interested in checking out their Halloween attraction? I know I would. That would be oh yeah, that'd be really cool to actually go do a Halloween house or, or a haunted attraction in an actual haunted place. I can only imagine how much scarier <laughs> that would be than just, you know, like a strip mall turned into a haunted house or something like that. I'm sure it'd be way more creepy in an actual place that is haunted. So definitely let us know what you think. Also be sure to let us know what haunted place you'd like us to cover next hotel. It could be anywhere. Uh, definitely would love to explore some more haunted places on the show in the future. But with all that being said, We'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a like on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And yeah, until next time, Lights Out.